Hello, everyone, and welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is week six, sociological theory. This week, we are talking about phenomenology, Jörg Zimmel, and his essay about fashion. And once again, still have my record player set up, but that is coming. So maybe next week we'll have some music to accompany the podcast. Um, as we move from Durkheim and Weber and Marx into Zimmel and Urban Gossman that we're going to do next week, we are making a very big shift in terms of our perspective um, and thinking about society and the theoretical perspective that we will be taking. The first three, right, Durkheim, Marx, and Weber are all adopting like a macro perspective. And they're all very interested in social structure and how individual motivations and actions and thoughts and behaviors and opportunities are all limited by the social structure, specifically accompanied by the advent of the modern world and industrial capitalism. And, and we've seen how each of these three thinkers have approached this, this new modern age that Europe and the United States and the rest of the world is, is, is entering into. And, and once again, taking a very top-down approach, thinking about these large-scale social forces like change and revolution and the development of norms across whole societies and how to compare and contrast whole societies and how do societies stay organized through bureaucratic, um, through bureaucratic hierarchies and um, the Iron Cage. And so I went through just then thinking about Marx, Durkheim, and Weber and some of their essential concerns regarding modernity. Now, when we move to phenomenology and symbolic interactionism, these are going to be two competing, not competing, but complementary, what we call micro perspectives. We're going to really shift um, and, and change our lenses here in terms of our theoretical perspectives for the next two weeks. We're going to be looking at the little things. We're going to be like for this week, we're looking at fashion, like the clothes that we wear, literally just the clothes that we wear. Uh, and then next week, we're going to be looking at sort of how we interact with people on a day to day basis and how we use symbols to govern those interactions. We're going to actually move, update our discussion of Goffman and talk about how this works in digital or online spaces. But we start this week, the first of our two micro perspectives associated with these old dead white guys. It's called phenomenology. And in our textbook, Jörg Zimmel, who we read for this week, is not mentioned in this textbook as an early um, practitioner of this theoretical perspective because he hadn't quite named it yet. But if we read it, um, there definitely are some major themes between Zimmel's essay here on fashion and um, and the, phenomena, the, the theoretical perspective of phenomenology. And, and simply put, phenomenology assumes that society is the result of what it calls, what it terms uh, an intersubject or a collective intersubjectivity. So it starts with the idea of the individual and specifically this notion of the self. And, and this is sort of an area of society or an area of sociology that we haven't really talked about. We've been talking about big macro things like politics, like economics, like, like bureaucratic organization, but we haven't really been talking about people that much. Uh, individual people, individual lives, and the fact that we all have um, our own minds, right? Our, our brains, each of us has a supercomputer inside of our heads, right? That, that allow us to think in these incredibly complex and individualistic ways. And this is sort of the, 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 the purpose or, or the goal of phenomenology is to understand how the self fits into society 
and conversely how society influences the self and your example is using fashion here to do that but we could think about this on many different levels i unfortunately don't have my textbook it is still unpacked or it may be sitting in my office somewhere which i've not had access to over the weekend so i will only be or i'll be primarily lecturing on zimmel's essay um in this podcast but i do just from memory um there are a few few bits of the textbook chapter on phenomenology that i want you to be aware of first of all the two main thinkers um discussed in this chapter on phenomenology are alfred schutz and harold garfinkel um Alfred Schutz, I think, is one of the, the one of the people who coins the term phenomenology, for example, really, really focuses on the self and the different component parts of the self and how the self is put together by an individual and how it is maintained by society. And, and one thing that Schutz's sociology really, really emphasizes is the sort of ongoingness of the self. And I think this is really important that we don't turn ourselves off. We may have a front stage and a backstage. We may act differently in different settings or around different people or in different situations, but we never stop being ourselves throughout all of that, right? We are still deep down if we're fronting or not. We are still being ourselves. We're just adapting to a given situation. I think this is a really key point to make about phenomenology is the sort of ongoingness of social phenomena because it allows us to process change, I think, in a different way than just saying, oh, well, this is really sudden. And so when Zimmel um, discusses the phenomenology of fashion, he discusses its ongoingness. For example, fashion always changes, but it's always there. And I think that's what he means by that. And in and, and, and similar lines, we as people, we as individuals can change, but we are still ourselves throughout the process of going through our daily lives. And, and, and this is something that Zimmel, Zimmel is using fashion and the tension associated with fashion to highlight these aspects of our lives and really bringing it down to what is it like to experience modernity, right? What is it like for the self to, to go through these major social changes that Durkheim, Weber, and Marx are so concerned with? And so when we think about the ongoingness of the self, right, two terms come into play here, subjectivity and intersubjectivity. Subjectivity is the perspective of the self. It is it is the way a subject, a person, sort of understands and interprets the world around them. And now our understandings and interpretations of the world around us do not occur in a social vacuum, i.e. our interpretations and, and understandings of the world around us are also influenced heavily to a very heavy extent by other people around us who have their own subjectivities. And when we make these connections between individuals in a family, for example, Right, we end up with something called intersubjectivity, the way that selves, that individuals become linked together through shared experiences, through shared context, through shared histories, or or devise divisions between themselves based on a lack of these aspects, or create new connections based on other social phenomena like fashion, for example, to bring this back around to what we're talking about tonight. And so this notion of the, the ongoingness of the self and the ongoingness of social phenomena, I think is important to, to recognize with phenomenology. It's very different than the way symbolic interactionism, especially Irving Goffman and in his discussion of front and backstage kind of treats um, the same subject material that we're working with here. 
So um, I just want to point that out. And then this notion of intersubjectivity can be kind of hard to wrap our minds around. I really wish I had my textbook to go into it with a little bit more detail. Um, I should be able to cover that with you in a little bit more detail during our session on Thursday. And another way that we're kind of shifting gears this week is we're really changing the nature of our subject material. And we've been using these different examples throughout the class, right? We used wage labor in our discussion of Marx, suicide in the discussion of Durkheim, and then like the Trump administration. So these are maybe not the most fun things to talk about. Um, and Zimmel's discussion of fashion is topically, I, I would say, a little bit more fun. And so we're going to um, kind of lighten up the mood here a little bit. But, but I think Zimmel's got some really interesting things to say about fashion and how it highlights certain tensions that exist within modern society. And I think starting out with this essay here, right, this is what he's, he's, he's talking about. He says the whole history, and, and um, you'll have to forgive me, I'm, I'm reading from a book and my page numbers are different from the file that you have on Canvas. And so I will specifically be referring to sections one through eight. And I think those are the same in my reading and yours. And so I'm, I'm going to just make brief comments on all these different sections as we go through. And so he says the first line here um, in my reading, I think you have a little bit longer one. says the whole history of society is reflected in the striking conflicts to compromises. Slowly won and quickly lost between socialistic adaptation to society an individual departure from its demands. Socialistic adaptation to society and individual departures from its demands. So once again, he's he's identifying this this tension in society and, and the way it and the way it is expressed in the world of fashion is this tension between um, wanting to be different and wanting to be kind of the same, right? Between um and um between dressing the same or dressing different in order to kind of stand out, but you don't want to stand too far out or else you would be seen, it would be seen as uh, not fashionable, for example. But this is the tension, right? This, this, and what would Durkheim say about this? This would be like a tension between agency and structure. So do we want to kind of fit in with the crowd or do we want to stick out, right? How, how do our desires to express our individual individuality play a role in this? And so fashion in many ways becomes a barometer for the sort of projection of the self in public settings, uh, in, in social situations where you have to project a certain, you want to project a certain image of yourself to others. Fashion becomes a barometer for that in many ways, but it's also a marker of class difference. And so these are all some of the, the, the points that Zimmel is making as he goes through this essay. We have always to deal with the same fundamental form of duality, which is manifested biologically in the contrast between heredity and variation. And so he even is drawing this back to nature, right? We inherit um, our DNA, we inherit our biological makeup from our parents, but sometimes it's different, right? We, there's sometimes there's genetic variation. Here he is pointing here to dark no, um, notions of Darwinian evolution, right? This contrast between sameness and difference in society is what he's ultimately getting at here. And fashion, right, navigates this difference in the world of social interaction and in the world of the self and how the self 
in how in how we project ourselves to others. And so this is kind of how he's setting up the argument here in these first couple pages within the social embodiments of these contrasts. One side is generally maintained by the psychological tendency towards imitation, right? Imitation can be a form of survival, right? If someone is doing something right and being successful, you imitate that. Um, we see this a lot in the business world, for example. The charm of imitation in the first place is to be found in the fact that it makes it possible to an expedient test of power, which requires no great personal and creative application. You can still be great and still imitate by imitation. And lots of people have become great or, or, or done great things through the imitation of others. Whenever we imitate, we transfer not only the demand for creative activity, but also the responsibility for the action from ourselves to another. Thus, the individual is freed from the worry of choosing and appears simply as a creature of the group, as a vessel of the social contents, right? By imitation, we blend in. We don't stick out, right? We become part of the school of fish. We become part of the herd. And there's a certain comfort in that, argues Zimmel right here. But it comes at a price, right? What's the price? It comes at the price of our individuality. And so moving on to section two here, he, he then talks about, well, the vital conditions of fashion as a universal phenomena and the history of our race are circumscribed by these conceptions, right? In, in the social phenomena that we call fashion, we can see quite plainly and quite clearly the, the tension between difference and sameness, right? Between individuality and, and uh, conformity that we see um, in history more generally. Fashion highlights this. And if we look at fashion from this perspective, then we can understand how this tension works in society more generally. Right. This is one of the theses that he's making here, one of his arguments that he's making here. At the same time, fashion satisfies in no less degree the need of differentiation, the tendency for dissimilarity, the desire for change and contrast. And it gives to the fashion of today an individual stamp as opposed to that of yesterday. Once again, fashion is always with us, but it is always changing. What is fashionable now was not fashionable X amount of time ago, um, and maybe what is fashionable now was not fashionable five years ago, but perhaps was fashionable 20 years ago. And at one point he does talk about why retro fashion becomes a part of the world of fashion more generally. Thus fashion represents, quoting again, nothing more than one of the many forms of life by the aid of which we seek to combine in uniform spheres of, acti of activity, the tendency towards social equalization with the desire for individual individual differentiation and change. So, so there's this tension within the self, right? He's talking about this on an individual level, very different than, than the way Marx and Weber and Durkheim talk about, talk about their sociology, right? And the individual level, right? Each of us as individuals struggles with this tension of, of, of how much do I fit in or how much do I kind of want to stand out and be my own person. And, and our desires to, to go one way or another are governed in large part by the social world around us. So once again, we are staying ourselves, but we are being influenced quite heavily by the world around us. Fashion on the one hand signifies union between those in the same class. 
and the uniformity of his circle characterized it. And uno actu, right? In addition to that, the exclusion of all other groups, fashion becomes a way to differentiate not just ourselves on an individual level, but also on a group level. Right. There are class differences in fashion, for example. There are racial differences in fashion. There are quite clearly gender differences in fashion. Fashion, in fact, is one of the main markers by which we measure and judge gender in modern society. And Zimmel has thoughts on that, too. Right. And so if we if we want to like kind of summarize these these various sections as we go on. Right. The first section talks about this general tension in society. The second section talks about why fact, why uh, a study of fashion can highlight this tension. And and I just want to throw some quotes out here just to give us a sense of maybe how to interpret this work. Right. The more objective our view of life has become in the last centuries, the more it has stripped the picture of nature of all subjective and anthropomorphic elephants elements and the more sharply has the conception of individual personality become defined so as we adopt a more scientifically based or more objective right of more value or neutrally or value free um view of the world then individuality becomes more important because we lose what Durkheim would call that strong social integration characterized by traditional communities and so once again, Zimmel here, um, to draw a point of connection, is, is thinking about fashion in a traditional sense versus a modern sense, right? He talks about fashion among primitive peoples and how it is characterized by a pretty uniform type of sameness, right, across the board with maybe some differences in what the chief is going to wear versus what the, what the regular people are going to wear in, in an indigenous community, for example. And thinking about other points here in the second section, there is um, an important passage here talking about the class differences in fashion and sort of the cycle of fashion. And so he writes here that social forms, apparel, aesthetic judgment, the whole style of human expression are constantly transformed by fashion in such a way, however, that fashion, i.e. the latest fashion, and all these things affects only the upper classes. Just as soon as the lower classes begin to copy their style, imitating that style, thereby crossing the line of demarcation the upper classes have drawn, remember the upper classes create a fashion to distinguish themselves from the lower classes, and they destroy the uniformity of their co coherence, the coherence of different class groups. The upper classes turn away from the style and adopt a new one, create a new fashion, which in turn differentiates them from the masses, and thus the game goes merrily on. Naturally, the lower classes look and strive towards the upper, and they encounter the least resistance in those fields which are subject to the whims of fashion. It is easier to project an image of upper classness by wearing something than to actually have money, for example. And so this is what Zimmel was talking about here, that the, the sort of class-based tensions between, in the world of fashion and the cycle of it. So the upper classes drive fashion trends and then these are copied by the lower classes, which then motivates the upper classes to come up with even newer fashion trends because they constantly need to be differentiating themselves from the lower classes. Meanwhile, the lower classes want to differentiate themselves from the rest of the lower classes and um, create a degree of similarity between themselves and the higher classes 
in their imitation. And, and we could think of examples of this, um, you know, happening now. And, and I would say the world of fashion is a bit more fragmented now with many more inputs and um, many more different uh, acceptable sorts of styles, for example, than, than what Zimmel is writing about. He's probably writing about strictly in the European context um, with a nod to sort of the primitive uh, and uniform fashion of indigenous peoples. But I did want to point that out. Um, and I will include this video, um, a clip from the movie A Devil Wears Prada, where Anne Hathaway is, she's like, I don't understand why the color of the belt matters and, and blah, blah, blah. And Meryl Streep's like, and she just like tears her up because Anne Hathaway's wearing this blue sweater that she picked off some discount rack. And uh, Meryl Streep is like four years ago, Valentino was using that exact same color in his fall collection. And it filtered down through all the lower houses and it became fashionable everywhere until it was turned into a sweater that you picked up off the discount rack that you were wearing in my office right now, four years later. And so I think that that clip is a really good example of, and I'll include it in the announcement, a really good example of the sort of the class driven cycle of fashion that Zimmel is talking about here. And what else from the second one? Oh, and here he does talk about race here. Um, the motive of foreignness, foreignness, which fashion employs in its socializing endeavors is restricted to higher civilization because novelty, which foreign origin guarantees in extreme form, is often regarded by primitive races as an evil. And, and this is a nod to uh, racial and cultural appropriation in the world of fashion, bringing in uh, Chinese aesthetics right um as a result of colonial domination african aesthetics as a result of colonial domination into the world of high fashion in the the houses the, the high houses of europe um becomes a form of appropriation and zimmel's sort of re we're talking about this here but taking a non-critical stance right is not recognizing this as being racist for example um and is really talking about the sort of economic imperatives that the fashion world satiates within the world of capitalism, within the larger world of capitalism, this notion of fashion as an economic frontier, as, as being one of these sort of areas of human expression that, that can easily appropriate bits and pieces of other cultural forms into it and into the sort of cycle of commodification and class driven competition that, that fashion also operates in. And so just trying to keep all these different pieces in place. And that's all I had to say about the second section. So I'll move on to section three. Okay, so section three is really about where does fashion come from? And once again, he starts with this tension um, and he starts with like the primitive races. Once again, this sort of embedded racism that we find with, with all these, these old dead white guys is something we're gonna start addressing in a whole lot more detail, um, starting with Du Bois right after we watch the movie in a couple of weeks. More information on that coming up as well. Um, but section three here in Simmel's essay on fashion is really where does fashion come from? What are its sort of conceptual origins or its phenomenological origins? Um, and he says it's all, and, and, and fashion would not exist according to Zimmel without class differences without a social hierarchy, without 
a power structure in society because because fashion becomes a way to differentiate these various levels of the power structure. The very character of fashion demands that it should be exercised at one time only by a portion of the given group, the great majority merely being on the road to adopting it. He continues, as fashion spreads, it gradually goes to its doom. Once again, talking about the cycle of fashion, and, and, and this is where fashion comes from. So it comes out of this ongoingness, out of this sort of, this, this bubbling of intersubjectivity that is always leading from a phenomenological perspective to either slight or slighter or, or greater degrees of social change all the time. As he says here, fashion always occupies the dividing line between the past and present. Between, excuse me, fashion always occupies the dividing line between the past and the future and consequently conveys a stronger feeling of the present, at least while it is at its height than most other phenomena. There is, there's, there's nothing more ephemeral, ephemeral than fashion, according to Zimmel. And, and also you hear, like in the world of high fashion, that is, you know, that, that dress was so last season or whatever, um, Few phenomena of social life possess such a pointed curve of consciousness as does fashion. As soon as the social consciousness attains to the highest point designated by fashion, it marks the beginning of the end for the latter. And so fashion, if somehow we could get past it, for example, we may, we may be at a point of new social organization. Um, we may need to have a new kind of uh, phenomena to differentiate that we use to differentiate ourselves but he says and what is perhaps the most important point to be aware of in this third section of the essay um the fact that fashion has has is come to occupy such an, a prominent role in um, contemporary modern society, and here he's writing this in like the early 1900s, right when like Weber is writing and and Durkheim was writing Suicide, I think 1899, um, a little bit after Marx, but right around the turn of the 20th century. And he writes here the break with the past, right? This shift from a traditional to a modern society, the break with the past, which for more than a century civilized mankind has been laboring unceasingly to bring about makes the consciousness turn more and more to the present. This accentuation of the present evidently at the same time emphasizes the element of change and a class will turn to fashion in all fields. By no means only in that of apparel, everything starts to become associated with the logic of fashion in proportion to the degree in which it supports the given civilizing tendency. It may almost be considered a sign of the increased power of fashion, that it has overstepped the bounds of its original domain, which comprised only personal externals, as in, and has acquired an increasing influence over taste, over theoretical conviction, and even over the moral foundations of life. So fashion, as it, it relates to the expression of individuality takes on an increased prominence and therefore um, assumes more power in this new modern society. And, and one can tell from the language here that Zimbel's not really sure how he thinks about that. He 
thinks he thinks this may be a problem, right? That 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 we extend the logic of fashion, right? The ephemerality of it, uh, for example, the class-driven competition of it. Um, if we ex- start to extend that to other aspects of our lives beyond just, you know, thinking about the clothes that we wear or the way that we style our hair or the types of metal that we adorn our bodies with. Um, and so, and so I think that, you know, once again, using this as an example, but really expanding these ideas is, is something that we want to be thinking about as we move into these micro perspectives. And that's all I wanted to say about section three. I'll be moving on to section four. All right. So just to recap where we've been so far, section one is talking about this sort of tendency between this tension, excuse me, between differentiation and sameness in society, between imitation, uh, between um, uh, self-expression and conformity, right? Uh, between agency and structure. Section two is about how fashion can show us, uh, can highlight how this tendency works. On, on an individual interactional level. Um, section three is about the increasing power of fashion, right? And, and fashion's conceptual origins and why it has more power in a modern society that is driven by more individualistic tendencies. Here we have in section four, how does the self, how, how do we as individuals process, right? Our fashion, right? What do we as individuals do? And he goes through some patterns here, right? Fashion, Frizimal is an expression of subjectivity. Um, and so he says there is an, a shade of envy, envy, and I think this is important, right? We, uh, we look at people who are dressed fashionably according to Zimbabwe, like, hey, that person looks nice. I like that outfit. And even in that compliment, there's, for Zimbabwe, like a, a little bit of envy going on there. And, and here's what he says about this. Yet even this envy uh, has a peculiar coloring there is a shade of envy which includes a special species of ideal participation in the envied object itself. An instructive example, example of this is furnished by the conduct of the poor man who gets a glimpse of the feast of his rich neighbor. The moment we envy an object or a person, we are no longer absolutely excluded from it. And I think this is very important sort of on a psychological and mental level. Some relation or other has been established in the moment that envy occurs between both the same psychic content, between both the same psychic content now exists, although in entirely different categories and forms of sensation, both the, the person who possesses the object and the person who does not possess but envies both the person and the object are attached to the object, albeit in different ways. This is what Zimbo is saying. If you don't envy something, then you're not attached to it. And this is going to play a role um, in his argument in a couple of pages for for why even if you say you don't care about fashion, then that means that you care about fashion. But anyway, this is a student. This is an argument that I've had several students make. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But once again, these are all different ways. This this section outlines different ways that individuals sort of navigate this tension on 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 their own terms. And so we have the character of the dude, right? In the dude, the social demands of fashion appear exaggerated to such a degree that they completely assume an individualistic and peculiar character. I might think of like Instagram influencers uh, wearing outlandish like e-boys or e-girls like wearing these outlandish sort of uh, outfits and 
colored hair and that sort of thing to make them completely stand out. And yet there's a certain aesthetic that they all share as a group. Um, it is characteristic of the dude. I like this, this character, the dude, that he carries the elements of a particular fashion to an extreme. When pointed shoes are in style, he wears shoes that resemble the prow of a ship. When high collars are all the rage, he wears collars that come up to his ears. When scientific lectures are fashionable, you cannot find him anywhere, etc. You cannot find him anywhere else, etc., etc. Thus, he represents something distinctly individual, which consists in the quantitative intensification. I'm going to do what everyone else is, is doing right now, but I'm just going to do like a lot of it. I'm going to do it in a way more intense way. And therefore, even though I'm doing the same things as you, I still stand out from you. The quantitative intensification of such elements are as qualitatively common property of the given set of class. He leads the way, but all travel the same road. The reality, however, is what is so frequently true of the relation between individuals and groups also applies to him. As a matter of fact, the leader allows himself to be led, um, even though the dude is individualistic in the intensification of his fashion, he's still basically following the same pattern as everyone else. And to contrast this with the dude, there is the man who rejects fashion, the man who consciously avoids following the fashion, the person who thinks that they don't care about fashion. What does Zimmel have to say about this? It becomes evident that the same combination which extreme obedience to fashion acquires can be won also by opposition to it. Whoever consciously avoids following the fashion does not attain the consequent sensation of individualization, individualization through any real individual qualification, but rather through the mere negation of the social example. If obedience to fashion consistent imitation of such an example Conscious neglect of fashion represents similar imitation, but under an inverse sign. The man who consciously pays no heeds to fashion accepts its forms just as much as the dude does, only he embodies it in another category. The former in that exaggeration, in that of exaggeration, that's the dude, the latter in that of negation. So even if you don't care about fashion, the fact that you are not caring about fashion means that fashion is still a part of the way you think about yourself and the way you process yourself and how you interact with the world around you. So I think that that's an important point to make um, regarding the arguments here. And he says, if the club haters organize themselves into a club, it would not be logically more impossible and psychologically more possible than the above case. So we can imagine like the club haters organizing themselves into a club so they can go hating on all the other clubs, right? But that would be, you could see why Zimmel is like making this sort of paradoxical argument. So even if you negate and, and going back to his, one of the, the statements from the previous page, the moment we envy an object, we are no longer absolutely excluded from it. The moment we reject something, in the same sense, the moment that we reject something, we are no longer excluded from it. A connection has been made. And I think that this is part of the logic that I find so interesting with, um, with Zimmel's work here. 
All right, that's all I had to say about section four. Moving on to section five. All right, moving on to section five. This one talks is about women and fashion, and really uh, a lot of the same logic still here still applies. But really, he's thinking about gender differences and how that affects the differences between men's and women's fashion. Uh, women traditionally known as being sort of more fashion conscious, more fashion oriented, especially in like high society, which of course, is the driver of most fashion trends, according to Zimmel. And Zimmel has like a pretty, um, I think, well thought out argument here um, in regards to his larger arguments. Um, um, in a male dominated society, um, it is men who are allowed to express their individualism in, in more ways. For example, finding um, a different career or getting educated in various ways or being able to go out public have a larger network uh, of friends, um, um, not being as confined to the house as was traditionally expected of women for hundreds of years. Um, and he says here, the relationship and the weakness of her social position to which woman has been doomed during the far greater portion of history, however, explains her strict regard for custom, um, her strict regard for the customs of fashion and, and their importance and for the generally accepted and approved forms of life for all that is proper, right? It is important for women because of this sort of uh, widespread subjugation to, to uh, conform to society's standards or else they would perhaps be singled out even more. And he may be making a vague reference to like witch hunts, right? Uh, that were, that had been taking place in Europe not too long before he's writing this. Um, but really, for, for Zimmel, it's all about how women are not allowed to express their individuality in as many places. But fashion is one place where they are allowed to express their individuality. And therefore, fashion for women becomes more important in terms of their expression of the self. Now, we could talk about how fashion is dictated by um, sort of masculine ideals of femininity and how these influence the world of women's fashion. But this is what Zimmel, this is why Zimmel thinks that fashion is more important for women than it is for men. And we can even see why Zimmel would say that if we look at like, you know, look at any red carpet like entry for any major awards ceremony. The women are going to be wearing all sorts of different dresses and Billy Porter, the women and Billy Porter are going to be wearing all sorts of different dresses, all kinds of colors, all different styles. And the men are going to be wearing like a variation of the same basic thing, a tuxedo. And in fact, and now one of the latest uh, Hollywood fashion trends is to like, is a green fashion trend. And so uh, women are taking dresses that they've worn to previous red carpet functions and getting, um, you know, top dollar celebrity designers to take those dresses and like recycle them and take the same material and, and remake it into a different dress or using um, gr more green materials, that sort of thing. Joaquin Phoenix literally made headlines because he decided to wear the same tuxedo, the exact same one to all the different red carpet functions. I didn't know this, but apparently these, these male celebrities, um, they, will wear, they will buy like a different designer tuxedo for every single one. Um, that used to be the norm for every single one of their um, you know, big public appearances, uh, grand, op grand openings, premieres, whatever. Um, 
And so we could see this in the difference between men's and women's red carpet fashion. And this is what Zimmer was talking about here. Women traditionally not allowed to exercise and, and express their individuality um, in, in other ways. And so fashion becomes one way that women um, do this. All right. And he says that this is pretty good. Like this is um, this is largely a good thing for women to be able to look to fashion, to express themselves. He says, um, towards the end of this section, we have here a triumph of the soul over the actual circumstances of existence. For women to express themselves in the world of fashion as they are allowed to do, it's sort of like almost like a, a form of resistance to the, to the male-dominated order. Once again, I think, uh, you know, Simone de Beauvoir might have some thoughts about that, and we'll we'll get to her in this class. But um, it's just like a strangely sort of optimistic view for Zimmel to be taking here. A triumph of the soul over the actual circumstances of existence, which must be considered one of the highest and finest victories, at least as far as form is concerned, for the reasons that the enemy himself, right, male, male domination is transformed into a servant, Right, the men are supposed to go out and buy the women all these nice pretty things. And that the very thing the personality seemed to suppress is voluntarily seized because the leveling suppression is here transferred to the external spheres of life in such a way that it furnishes a veil and a protection for everything spiritual and now all the more free. And now he is getting to what Simone de Beauvoir would call makeup putting on the war paint, right? Putting on the fashionable dress, letting the men be dazzled. By your outwards appearance will keep the men at bay from trying to get to see the real you or whatever if if if, if you're worried about male aggression on these other kinds of levels right it becomes it becomes a form of protection a veil that zimmel says so once again um you know plenty to talk about here but i did want to point out um this like strange like optimistic point that he has regarding women in fashion all right, uh, moving on from section five to section six right now. All right, moving on to section six, uh, leaving the topic of gender and circling back around to this point that he makes earlier about the sort of increasing power of fashion. Uh, specifically, when he's talking about the logic of fashion, how it's like infecting other parts of the way that we think and process the world in, in, the mod in, in modern times. And, and really, he's talking here about ego and how uh, fashion becomes a way for us to manage uh, issues of self-esteem that we encounter, right, because of low social integration in a modern world. Um, with low social integration, we have fewer of these connections, fewer of these um, sort of relational affirmations of who we are as important people, right, uh, social isolation can lead to low self-esteem. And I think that this is the link that, that, um, that this is the connection that we're talking about here in section six and then fashion becomes a way to alleviate self-esteem for the socially isolated individual. Fashion is only, is also is one of the only forms by the aid of which men seek to save their inner freedom all the more completely by sacrificing internals, externals to enslavement by the general public. I don't need to worry about fashion anymore. As long as I just kind of imitate 
what everyone is doing, then no one's, then I'm, I'm going to be less isolated, right? By sacrificing externals. If I, even if I don't like to wear jeans all the time, I will still wear jeans when I go out because it's just like kind of an acceptable thing to do better than just wearing like a towel around my waist or something like that, even though the functionality would be kind of the same. But we sacrifice our externals to enslavement by the general public in order to save our self-esteem, in order to feel, um, in order to prevent ourselves from feeling less isolated than we might already feel. <clears throat> and so, and so, once again, this is one. This is more, you know, problematizing the modern world and increased individuality in similar ways as as Durkheim and indeed um, as Weber does. Freedom and independence also belong to those antagonistic pairs whose ever-renewed strife and endless mobility give life to much more piquancy and permit of a much greater breadth and development than a permanent, unchangeable balance of the two could give. Um, <laughs> right, once again, moving in these dialectical arguments, um, freedom and independence also belong to these two antagonistic pairs. So um thinking about you know external sacrificing our external um appearances in through fashionable expression um is in a way not free right is in a way um being unfree and so he's really sort of complicating what we mean by freedom what we mean by dependence um in this section and once again fashion becomes the arbiter and therefore um the more freedom and and independence and individuality we have, the more power fashion has as the arbiter between sameness and difference in society. And the more that logic moves to other areas of social life. And, and he's got some really powerful words here towards the end of this section. In one respect, this is a group fashion, fashion yet in another respect, it is really individual. For its express purpose consists in having the individual make the totality of his circles of his circle of ideas subject to this formula of fashionable logic of the logic of fashion, brutal violence. If we if we start start making our entire selves revolve around, if we start thinking about ourselves, right, ourself, our individual self, capital S, in terms of the logic of fashion he says that we are committing brutal violence against the individuality of all things all variation is destroyed by the curious supremacy of that one category of expressions right we we um we start to think about everything in terms of being fashionable or not when actually fashionable has its own sort of phenomenological content to it that Zimmel is going to actually address here in one of these later sections. And he, we can see this, for example, when we designate all things that happen to please us for any reason whatsoever as chic or smart, even though the objects in question may bear no relation whatsoever to the fields in which these expressions belong. And so this is like one thing that I would do or that I still do is I would say cool, right? A lot of things can be cool. Um, uh, it could be cool outside and that's cool, right? The temperature is cool and that's also cool. Uh, a pair of uh, pants could be cool. 
A jacket could be cool. A TV could be cool. Um, a road between point A and point B that winds along a stream and it's got like lots of cool trees over it and is really pretty could be cool. We use cool to signify all these things that are good. And this for Zimmel is the sort of increasing power of the logic of fashion in in sort of shaping the way that we think about the world and therefore how we think about ourselves. Because the two, the way we think about our externality and the way we think about our internality um, as individuals in the world, the two are connected is what Zimmel is saying. It's part of this ongoing process of social phenomena. All right. And that's about all I wanted to say about that, right? Once again, circling back to this notion of fashion, having more power in our lives and a modern society characterized by mass production, which is um, one of the topics of section seven. So we'll move to there now. And in section seven, here he is once again, circling back around to fashion's role in uh, the class structure or how fashion operates within the modern class structure. Um, he says the highest classes, as everyone knows, are the most conservative. They, infrequently enough, they're the mo most archaic. They dread every motion and change. Um, and so with the highest, like the super rich, like the ones who have like all the political power, they're not going to be like the fashion trendsetters. They're going to pick up their fashion trends from like the upper middle classes, the people that want to strive to be noticed by the highest, the most powerful in society, but also have the economic means to play around with different fashion looks and can get away with it. Um, for example, I think Kamala Harris is like, people are talking about the fact that she's wearing like Chuck Taylors and Converse sneakers, um, as if it's like a big fashion choice, but it, but casual footwear for professional women has been a trend for, for years now. Um, but it's just the fact that she's in this higher position of power, that sartorial choice is coming under um, uh, a lot closer scrutiny. Um, and so the, the people at the very top have to be very careful about what they wear because uh, people will talk and and it would not be good for their image, yada, yada, yada. Um, and, and the real variability of historical life is therefore vested in the middle classes. And for this reason, this history of social and cultural movements have fallen into an entirely different pace since the state since democracies assume control. And so, and so here he is talking about sort of the way fashion is attached to various class structures. Um, the more an article becomes subject to rapid changes of fashion, the greater demand for cheap products of its kind, not only because the larger and therefore poorer classes nevertheless have enough purchasing power to regulate industry and demand, uh, and demand objects which at least bear the outward semblance of style, but also because the higher circles of society could not afford to adopt the rapid changes in fashion forced upon them by the imitations of the lower circles if the objects were not relatively cheap. And so here's like mass production playing a role in this, the availability um, of the lower classes to imitate the styles of the rich ones. And we've even seen this. We've got, you know, like a lot of, a lot of retail companies now will, They'll make the cheapest clothes possible that fall that fall apart, and they're only designed to last a season. Like like some of the stuff at Gap recently. I mean, these places are filed for bankruptcy now. But like some of the like 
the stuff at Gap, like it's only meant to last. Like you're only supposed to wear it like for a summer and they get rid of it, especially women's clothes. But men's to a growing extent as well. But this is especially the case of women's clothes. And this is brings me to a point that I want to uh, reiterate when it comes to fashion. Um, fashion in, in, in the world of capitalism, fashion exists as a sort of economic frontier. Capitalism must always expand. And here is fashion is this uh, this materially driven, consumer-driven phenomena that always seeks change, that always seeks innovation and difference. So you're not always making the same thing. So there's always these new frontiers for investments in different styles and different colors and different types of garments and different fits. Um, and so therefore fashion becomes this, this sort of release valve in many ways for the internal pressures created by capitalism um, in a way that, that other social constructions like race or gender do as well. And in fact, all three of these become linked um, when we think about trends in the world of high fashion today, for example, um, and we'll go through this, I'll try to do this video progression for you all in our meeting on Thursday, but, um, you know, the new director of men's fashion at Louis Vuitton is a guy named Virgil Abloh, um, an African American man from Wisconsin, um, who, who became famous as a designer of high end streetwear. Like he would sell t-shirts that cost $300. Um, these are marketed as high fashion. He started a, his own label called Off-White. Um, and he also got into high-end sneaker design as well. And so he became famous for like doing this series of deconstructed Air Jordans that, you know, would sell for like $10,000 a pair. Um, and so here we have blackness and urban fashion sort of bubbling up into the world of high fashion through the work of people like Virgil Abloh, um, once again, and then, and then if we think back to the origins of, of contemporary urban fashion and like saggy pants starting in the nineties, um, this all comes out of the clothes that, that, uh, were available for prisoners, uh, for incarcerated people. And so this comes out of, um, mass incarceration, which leads to new fashion trends. And now all of a sudden we have an African-American's head of, men's fashion at Louis Vuitton, one of the most influential fashion brands in the world. And so once again, it's this cycle of fashion and, 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 um, and we can be critical of the ways of the ways that it works. And so I'm trying to point out examples that we could discuss or to get y'all's, um, minds thinking about this. Um, and moving on to chapter to section eight, excuse me, section eight. And this is when he really tries to, contrast right what are what are the sort of the, the conceptual boundaries of fashion and, and here he, he's comparing fashion to art and and for him the difference between fashion and art is sort of fashion's sort of uh, ephemerality the fact that it changes so frequently the fact that it is caught up in in issues of self-esteem um that issues of collective self-esteem and intersubjectivity in a way that art simply isn't. And, and he's not saying that something that could be created by a person and not considered art at one time could be considered art at a later time, but art still has this sort of timeless quality to its very nature that, that kind of distinguishes it from fashion. And this is how we draw from a phenomenological perspective, these, these, these boundaries, right? Between different, um, um, 
different practices, different behaviors, different means of making things, different meanings that we put on things, right? There's a, 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 um, multiple, multiple ways to think about this here. So I think that, oh, and here's this thing about retro fashion, right? I was just talking about sort of urban fashion. Um, at the end of section seven, right, this class-based nature of it, uh, fashion, to be sure, is concerned only with change. And this is in a way that art, for example, is not sort of concerned with change in that way. According to Zimmel, um, we can make arguments for another case. <laughs> fashion, to be sure, is concerned only with change. Like all phenomena, it tends to conserve energy. It endeavors to attain its objects as completely as possible, but nevertheless, with the relatively most economical means for this very reason, Fashion repeatedly returns to old forms, as is illustrated particularly in wearing apparel in the course of fashion has been likened to a circle. Here it is. This is, um, you know, this is like in the year 2005 when all of a sudden 80s culture and 80s fashion was really cool. I think 80s fashion was cool again, but uh, 10 years ago it wasn't. Um, there's, and this is like 90s fashion is going to come back in style in the 90s. Guess what? 70s fashion and 60s fashion was in style. Just look at like the success of a movie like Austin Powers, for example, to look at sort of uh, uh, the nostalgia for 70s and 60s fashion in the 1990s. By the 1990s, 80s fashion was considered not cool at all. So once again, these things go in cycles. And what does Zimmel say about this? It's because it's, it's about conserving creative and intellectual energy it becomes about this recycling of fashion trends um, as a way that we don't have to constantly keep thinking up with all these new things. So just wanted to point out his thoughts on retro fashion here. You'll certainly have lots to think about. Remember, no small group meetings this week. So please maybe give this podcast a little bit more attention than you normally would. I look forward to meeting with you um, because you're not meeting in small groups. I really want to hear your thoughts, questions, concerns, about our material for this week and also i want to talk a little bit about last week and your small group discussions on vapor and bureaucracy so um yeah we're going to have a lot to fit in in an hour on thursday i look forward to seeing you i hope you're all doing well please take care all right bye-bye